Warriors. I'm Lucas Livingston, your dungeon master on our intrepid journey through the mythical realm known as the Ancient Heart Podcast. In recent episodes, we've encountered fierce beasts and fantastical monsters, notably that celebrated timeless creature of legend known as the dragon. Here in episode 49 of the Ancient Art Podcast, we're going to dig deeper, exploring the ancient legends and origins of the dragon, separating fact from fiction and good from evil. Dragons permeate our cultural heritage in many forms and fashions, as ferocious, fire-breathing, flesh-eating monsters, as noble emblems of honor and peace-loving creatures of earth, air, and water. But what are the ancient sources for our modern legends? From the salty depths of the Mediterranean across the sun-scorched deserts of Central Asia to the misty mountains of China and Japan, where do dragon myths first begin to take root? Can ancient authors help us find the way? Do mysterious remnants of bleached bones hold the key to the dragon's secrets? Stick around and we may yet find out. So pack your bags, buy your spell components, and polish your longsword, cause we're going dragon hunting. Last time in episode 48, we learned all about that famous work of late classical Greek sculpture known as the Apollo Sauroctonos by Praxiteles. Sauroctonos is usually translated as lizard slayer. Katonos comes from kateno, meaning to kill, and saura simply means lizard. But we also threw around the word dragon a few times. As we learned, the sculpture alludes to the mythological battle between Apollo and Python over the sanctuary and oracle of Delphi. In ancient Greek, that titanic serpent Python is called Puthon, which is just a name, and that's where we get the word Python from, not the other way around. Now, as you undoubtedly saw while you were closely scrutinizing the footnotes to episode 48, a word we sometimes see to describe Python is Drakainon, or Drakon, where we can clearly see the origin for our word dragon. Artwork from the Middle Ages and beyond generally displays a preference for representing Python as a stereotypical winged dragon, but to play devil's advocate, representations from ancient Greece usually show Python as being more serpentine than draconian. Another ancient dragon upon whose lair we recently stumbled is the one depicted on the Arapakis in episode 46. Not a lot's been published about this strange and wonderful creature. The woman perched upon the creature's been variously interpreted as a goddess of the sea winds, a nereid, an aspect of Venus, and other beings. Her and her compatriot's choice of billowing attire reminds me, appropriately enough, of the Serpentine Dance, an 1896 knockoff of Louis Fuller's famous Fire Dance, which was all the rage in the Parisian Moulin Rouge scene. The creature upon which this mystery woman is seated is usually called a sea creature or a sea monster, pretty much just as an afterthought. A 1994 article in the American Journal of Archaeology argues that the creature should be identified as a ketos, or cetus, which is, well, a sea monster, but the author describes it as a sea dragon emerging from the waves of the ocean's depths. Nereids are said to ride upon a cetus, and if you're watching your Downton Abbey, then you know that the Greek hero Perseus rescued and Andromeda from a cetus sent by Poseidon to devour her after Andromeda's mother Cassiopeia boasted that she was prettier than the Nereids. You might know the cetus better as a kraken, which is actually a creature of Nordic myth, and yeah, Clash of the Titans certainly took some liberties with this. According to the 1940 publication The Fish-Tailed Monster in Greek and Etruscan Art, the characteristic features of the cetus are a canine head, large erect ears, sharp teeth, and a scaly serpentine body. 
It doesn't mention wings as we see on our Augustan Age sea dragon, but wings don't necessarily have to be a prerequisite to qualify for dragonhood. That said, however, full-body depictions of the Cetus from antiquity often show wings or little wing-like membranes, like this Roman mosaic in the Vatican and this Greek vessel from the Louvre, similarly on this South Italian Lutroforus at the Getty. Frequently, though, we scarcely see more than the mere head of the Cetus in other draconian beasts. Here's a nifty 6th century BC black figure Corinthian amphora, now in the Berlin Altus Museum. It shows Perseus lobbing stones at the Cetus, while Andromeda stands behind. Draped over Perseus's arm is the bag where he's stashed Medusa's head. One thing that's interesting is how the head of the dragon seems to be emerging from some neverland beyond the scene. Perhaps we're expected to assume that it's emerging from the deep sea, like in other examples. There does seem to be a ripple of water under the beast's head. In the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, there's a 6th century BC Corinthian column crotter, which shows a similar fanged beast of whom we see nothing more than the head with its lolling tongue. This is the dragon of Troy, or the Trojan Cetus. Similar to the Perseus story, Poseidon sent this Cetus to rampage the Trojan coast after King Laomedon failed to pay back Poseidon for helping to build the walls of Troy. To appease the dragon, Laomedon chained his own daughter, Hesione, to a rock as a sacrifice. Now, Hercules just happened to be passing by after having wrapped up the ninth of his twelve labors. Seeing a damsel in distress, he slew the dragon and rescued Hesione. Does that story sound familiar to you? The hero arriving in the nick of time to save the fair maiden who was presented as a sacrifice to the dragon? St. George and the dragon comes to mind. Same story as Hercules and Hesione that was later re-spun for a Christian audience. Hercules was no stranger to fighting dragons. In his second labor, he was sent to a swamp near Lake Lerna to defeat the Lernian Hydra, a terrible beast with seven heads, although some say it had fifty, a hundred, even a thousand heads. To make matters more difficult, when one head of the serpentine dragon was cut off, another would grow in its place. Hercules was generally not proven to be the sharpest tool in the shed, but his resourceful sidekick Yolaus suggested that they take a flaming brand and cauterize the wounds after chopping off each head so that new heads couldn't grow back from the stumps. And to come up shortly after his encounter with the dragon of Troy, Hercules would be sent on his eleventh labor to obtain the golden apples of the Hesperides, guarded by the never-sleeping hundred-headed dragon Ladon. Going back to the dragon of Troy on the Boston Crater, we see Hercules shooting a volley of arrows as Hesione throws stones at a monstrous head jutting from a dark rocky outcropping. Like the Berlin Amphora, this beast is nothing but a head. More so, our imagination can't even fill in the rest of the creature since the disembodied head seems to be isolated, lodged into a cliff face. What's also curious about this image of the Trojan dragon is that it's devoid of the fleshy scaliness of other sea creatures. What does that bleach-white head with its vacant eye socket look like to you? What's that? A skull, you say? In the 2000 publication, The First Fossil Hunters, Paleontology in Greek and Roman Times, Adrian Mayer convincingly suggested that this is an ancient Greek vase painter's attempt at rendering a fossilized skull projecting from a rocky outcropping. With its forward-pointing teeth, the author suggests that it could have been inspired by a reptile or toothed whale skull, or perhaps most convincingly, the skull of an extinct giant giraffe like the Simotherium, which once roamed the hills of prehistoric Greece and whose fossils were most likely readily visible to any observant ancient Greek naturalist. 
The first fossil hunters also suggests that fossilized remains of the dinosaur Protoceratops could have inspired legends of the griffin among Central Asian merchants traversing the inhospitable Gobi Desert. The griffin is fairly well known to us today thanks to the antics of that Wizard of Hogwarts Harry Potter. Okay, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants. Technically, that was a hippogriff. Gosh. The Protoceratops has a large bird-like beak, long tail, four agile limbs, and, well, if you're bound and determined to see claws, then you're gonna see claws. All that was needed was the imagination of some sun-scorched travelers to slap wings on this half-lion, half-eagle creation to conjure up the griffin into modern consciousness. Most of us probably consider the griffin to be a beast of Greek mythology, but it actually originated in Central Asia and later made its way to ancient Greece. The first Fossil Hunters is an interesting read and painstakingly assembles all sorts of ancient Greek and Roman accounts of excavating and interpreting fossilized bones. The evidence stacks up fairly well to suggest that fossilized remains of Earth's gargantuan prehistoric animals inspired the many mythological creatures of early cultures, including the dragon in its many forms. The ancient Greek world is not alone in its draconian heritage. On his visit to India, the first-century Greek philosopher Apollonius described how the whole of India is infested with dragons of enormous size, from the marshes to the mountains, up to 30 cubits in length, with sizable crests on their backs and glittering gold or silver scales. When the dragons of the plains attack elephants, he explained both creatures perish, and the prized dragon carcass goes to the fortunate hunter who passes upon the spoil. The mountain dragon can take down an elephant, but the human hunter will subdue the beast through magical runes inscribed upon a cloak laying before the creature's lair. What's puzzling about Apollonius's account is that there isn't much from Indian mythology that would suggest dragons. There are plenty of Indian myths and legends about giant serpentine deities like Nagas ruling over the seas and pools, Ananta, the cosmic serpent of creation upon whom the god Vishnu reclines, and Mukalinda, the serpent king who sheltered the meditating Buddha during a torrential storm with his massive multi-headed hood. The original account by Apollonius is lost, but his tales are preserved in The Life of Apollonius by the 2nd century Greek writer Flavius Philostratus. Philostratus uses the Greek word drakon, but this may be a prime example where this term could be taken to mean a giant serpent instead of a dragon, although culturally the distinction between mythological serpents and dragons is pretty blurry. To return to the definitive ancient dragon, we need to continue our travels eastward to China and Japan. Throughout much of China's history, it was not uncommon for merchant caravans traveling the Silk Road or farmers plowing their fields to stumble upon and unearth bone fragments of ancient animals. These relics were dubbed dragon bones and readily sold off to apothecaries where they'd be ground up and consumed for their medicinal value. Dragon bones inscribed with oracular predictions by ancient peoples are especially prized today both in museums and still in pharmacies. Returning to the first fossil hunters, ancient Chinese people happening upon the fossilized remains of extinct prehistoric species might help to explain certain features of traditional dragons, like antlers resembling those of prehistoric deer who once roamed northern China and Mongolia. Fantastical winged creatures and snarling beasts permeate the artistic heritage of China. A long time ago in episode 8 about cicadas, we already looked at the monster mask commonly gracing ancient bronze vessels as early as the 2nd millennium BC and earlier jade carvings of the 3rd millennium. 
Winged creatures similar to dragons and griffins often blend into the decorative repertoire of early Chinese art. The distinctive features of the dragon gradually crystallized and soon became a favorite subject of Chinese artists. These meticulously crafted jade dragon pendants of the 5th to 3rd centuries BC gracefully capture the benevolent, ethereal nature of the mythical Chinese dragon as a creature of air and water. The Taoist celestial immortals are said to soar through the sky on the backs of dragons, as in this pair of Han Dynasty clay figures in the Art Institute. I'm struck by the similarity to images of Greek nereids riding their own dragons. What's really interesting is that if you go halfway in between Greece and China, along the heavily traveled trade routes of the Kandaran region of ancient Pakistan, at around the same time, circa 1st century BC or AD, you get the same thing, a Nereid riding her sea dragon. Unlike dragons of Western folklore, the Chinese dragon is a nice example of a good dragon. To take a page from the Midwest Buddhist Temple podcast... Dragons, like all the Buddhist animals, are totally defensive. They will not bring you harm unless you try to harm the Dharma. It's said that the dragon needs a drop of water from your sweat for it to become aggressive. Okay, maybe not as cuddly as Falcor, but hey, we'll take what we can get. But like Falcor, the East Asian dragon is also a luck dragon. And with its association with water and rain, the dragon becomes a symbol of fertility and fecundity. That makes this a very special time, because 2012 is the year of the dragon. Associated with power and strength, the dragon is the symbol of the emperor of China, and the phoenix the symbol of the empress. Remember the Art Institute's Ming Dynasty blue and white face from episode 8? Here we see a sinuous five-clawed imperial dragon swirling among wispy clouds with phoenix birds flitting about. It's a harmonious combination of the feminine empress united with the masculine emperor, like the yin and the yang, two complementary opposites brought together to form a balanced and unified whole. To close, dragons of course continue to be widely celebrated today in both popular culture and fine art, combining the time-honored traditions of the folding screen, painting, and calligraphy with modern abstraction. The 20th century Japanese artist Morita Shiryu enjoyed expressing his enthusiasm for the ancient creature. This screen in the Art Institute of Chicago called Dragon Nose Dragon literally spells out the title of the piece with the broad strokes of a gargantuan brush in highly stylized calligraphy. The artist used aluminum metallic paint covered by a yellow varnish to give the characters the appearance of shimmering golden dragon scales. The expressive forms of the words seem to animate like the coils of serpentine dragons. The figure to the right poised for the pounce, while the figure at left sails high among clouds, with its long tail flitting behind. I hope you enjoyed our exploration of the origins and appearances of dragons in ancient art. Don't forget to head on over to ancientartpodcast.org for all sorts of goodies like detailed credits for all the images, a big bibliography, and transcripts with footnotes. The whole social media thing may not be to your liking, so to paraphrase one of my favorite podcasts, the World Technology Podcast, there are many ways you can ignore me on social media. You can not friend me at facebook.com slash ancientartpodcast and disregard me on Twitter at Lucas Livingston. You may patently refuse to leave your comments on YouTube, I iTunes and Vimeo, but for the old school crowd, you can still get in touch with me via email at info at ancientartpodcast.org or send me your feedback on the web at feedback.ancientartpodcast.org. 
As always, thanks for tuning in, and see you next time on the Ancient Art Podcast.